Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. David Owen will join us to discuss volume control. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, hearing loss is an important problem impacting over 37 million people, especially as individuals age, the risks for hearing loss grow. Yet it's a subject that hasn't been talked about or sometimes ignored. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. David Owen. Mr. Owen is a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1991. He is a contributing editor at The Atlantic Monthly and a senior writer at Harper's. He has written numerous books, including his most recent release entitled Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World, in which he explores this issue for a general audience. And uh, Mr. Owen, thank you so much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, very important problem, hearing, more importantly, hearing loss, really a subject that gets ignored. Why do you think this is? You know, it's it's interesting because it's, it's such an important sense, and yet we don't pay attention to it. When I was a kid, you know, our parents would say, don't snap towels at each other, don't shoot BBs at each other, you could blind yourself. And yet no one ever said, when you mow the lawn, wear earplugs. Uh, when you use power tools or when you shoot 22s at summer camp, never once was there any suggestion that we were possibly doing things that, that could harm us. And I think people are more aware now, you're much more likely to see people wearing hearing protection than you were uh, when I was a kid, and yet we're still kind of casual about this sense. And young people tend to think, you know, it's a hearing loss, it's a problem of old people. Well, it's a problem of old people that begins as a problem of young people. It's the it's a lifetime of cumulative damage that we do to our hearing that begins in youth, and is and often the the worst exposures are 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 when we're young and most likely to be sitting in the you know the front row at a rock concert. And certainly uh, with devices now, which uh, people uh, sometimes plug up to uh, 11, uh, going straight into their ears, do you think people are more aware now of the problems of excessive volume? It definitely needs more awareness. It kind of goes both ways. I think people are more aware of it. It's much easier to find good ear protection than it used to be. And yet, as you say, you know, you can be sitting next to a kid listening to music over headphones and you want to say, you know, could you turn that down? It's really too loud for me. And I can't even imagine what it must be like for you. There are also whole segments of the population, the the military, the number one and number two service-related health claims made by American veterans are tinnitus and hearing loss. So they're both sound-related injuries that suffered by soldiers in combat, yes, gunfire, explosions, artillery fire, but also just the military life is loud. The generator is just a vehicle the equipment subjected to all insults to their hearing, they damage their hearing, often at very young ages, and then those pro- those hearing problems compound and are compounded by other consequences of, of uh, health-related consequences of military service. You know, a, a soldier who has post-traumatic stress disorder, it's often made much worse if the if their soldier has a constant ringing in his ears, uh, which uh, you know remind, inevitably reminds him of the situation that caused the, his other problems. So in a way, we're more aware of it. In another way, we're more vulnerable to the damage that it causes. 
often seems as though grasping the debilitating consequences of hearing loss or, or tinnitus doesn't seem as profound as, for example, losing one's sight, but can, in fact, be quite debilitating. It can. When I was a kid, sleepovers, you know, somebody say, well, would you rather be hanged or guillotined? Would you rather be frozen to death or burned? Would you rather be deaf or blind? And we debate these things. And we never really debated deaf, deaf or blind. Everyone said, oh, of course, I'd rather be deaf. But, you know, Helen Keller, who was both early, early childhood, always said that the worst ability was deafness, that uh, deafness, not being able to hear cuts you off from other people, and that it was a far more, uh, a bigger, had a bigger impact on her than not being able to see. I realized this for myself. My wife and I were having a picnic dinner with friends at the lake. A beautiful night, sitting at a picnic table, the sun's going down, beautiful sunset, lake is beautiful, kids playing in the water. Beautiful evening, and I was sneaking looks at my phone under the table, and I thought, you know, if I couldn't see, I wouldn't have any of this. But then I realized that if I couldn't hear, I wouldn't even be a kind of a tangential participant in the evening because the whole point of the, the party wasn't to look at the lake. It was to talk to each other. And if you can't relate to people that you're with, you're, you, 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 you cease to be, you try to kind of become invisible. I wouldn't, you know, if people felt anything about me at all, they would have been feeling sorry for me. So I changed my choice. I, I, switched, from, uh, I switched from deaf to blind. How much do we know about things that cause hearing loss and things, things like tinnitus? I mean, where are you in terms of the science of hearing? There are lots of different causes. There are hereditary causes, genetic causes that people are, have inherited forms of hearing loss. There are reversible kinds of hearing loss that are caused by things like problems with the tiny, tiny bones in the middle of the ear that can actually be corrected surgically. Then there are, is the hearing loss that's caused by overexposure to loud sound, and it's the most common cause of acquired hearing loss. And it's most of what, we, you know, when, when we have friends who we notice are gradually losing their hearing, it's, it's from a, a lifetime of, of exposure to too much sound. I start, I'm in my 60s now, and I certainly see it in, in my friends. My wife's hairdresser recently got hearing aids, and it's from occupation-long exposure to professional blow dryers. Sister blew out her ears by listening to music too loud on, on, with headphones. I have a golf buddy. We were playing golf in England last year, and we were walking together on a fairway. And I said, I said, David, have you ever had a hearing test? Because my friends have always thought he's kind of a space cadet. You would be having a conversation, and he would suddenly say something that didn't exactly fit into the context. And, and I always just thought he was on another planet. But I realized, it occurred to me, you know, he just can't hear what we're saying. And he said, you know, he was surprised. He said, no. And often that's the case. The person who has suffered hearing loss is very often not the first person to notice it. It will often be a spouse. People tend to lose the higher frequencies first, and often that means that they can't hear their wives' voices are higher pitched. They can hear their male friends better than they can can hear their wife. I have a friend who had the opposite kind of hearing loss, where he lost the low frequencies, which is rarer. He had trouble hearing his golf buddies, but I think the reason he went so long without hearing aids is that he was always able to hear his wife. I can think of many jokes that go along with that. <laughs> In some ways, sometimes it's hard to face these things because when you don't talk about it, then there's a stigma associated with... There definitely is, and it, it, that's a little puzzling too, but there, it, hearing loss is viewed as a sign of decrepitude. So, you, you know, I know people who see perfectly well, and they ha they've got glasses because they like the way glasses look. Nobody ever does that with hearing aids. Charlie Rose, back when he was on TV, did an hour-long show on hearing loss, on hearing and hearing loss. They were talking about hearing aids. They were talking about hearing, hearing loss, deafness. And during that whole hour, Rose never mentioned once that he was wearing hearing aids in both ears. And there was another guest on that show for the whole hour, too. He'd won the Nobel Prize in physics. You could see his hearing aids. 
and he never mentioned them either. And it, in both cases, I can only assume that it was out of a sense of shame that, you know, to admit that you have hearing aids, to admit that you can't hear, it's it's sign of some horrible thing. And people don't feel that that way about glasses. So it's it's a puzzle in that sense. Hearing aids also don't, they don't work the way glasses do. I'm very nearsighted. When I put on my glasses, I can see perfectly. If you lose the ability to hear in certain frequency ranges, I mean, completely lose the, you know, the, the sensory cells that are responsible for that, there's no hearing aid that can give that back to you. Hearing aids help you hear better in frequency ranges that you can hear, still hear to some extent, but they don't give back what you've completely lost. And I think people sometimes think, well, I'll just, I'll expose myself to all these noises. When I, get, when I need them, I'll get hearing aids and then everything will be fine again. But it's, it's different. And it's so different that when people do get hearing aids, they're often, they, they don't meet their expectations. They sound different. They sound different because the sound is, but then also it can be startling to hear sounds that you haven't heard in a long time. And so a common experience of people who get hearing aids for the first time is that they wear them for a little while and they, they get exasperated with them. They throw them in the drawer and they never they never use them again. Uh, it takes time to basically to train the brain to hear in this different way. And people don't always take the time to do that. Are there any biological cures on the way to store some of the lost hair cells, nerve damage, for example? That Yeah. A, a hearing researcher that I spoke to said there's never been a better time in human history to have hearing loss. And the reason is that there are an extraordinary number of very smart people who are working on regenerating lost hearing capability and making progress. It's years away. It doesn't, it's not so close that you should not do anything about protecting your ears or, or trying to compensate for losses that you've suffered. But it's on the horizon. And it's difficult with hearing because from birth, you have a limited number of sensory cells. We, you know, taste buds, the body constantly regenerates, tosses out adds new. Uh, it, and it does, it's just a constant re re renewal of cells. It doesn't happen with hearing. We're born with as many receptor cells uh, as we have ever. When they go away, they don't come back. And there are reasons for that. And it makes it complicated to talk about regenerating because it's not just enough to grow the kinds of cells that exist in the inner ear. Scientists have gotten figured out to some extent how to do that. They also have to fit in exactly in this incredibly intricate instrument. This, it's like a whole listening instrument. They have to be in the right place, tuned to the right frequency. All these things have to work together. It has to be plugged into the right socket leading to the brain. But as I say, there are advances being made. And one of them you mentioned, that you know, the reconnecting broken nerve connections, that's probably one of the most promising areas. One of the first stages, maybe the very first stage in, in sound-related hearing loss is a, is a kind of a break in a, a neural connection deep inside this tiny, tiny little connection. The chance of reconnecting, plugging that back in are greater probably through intervention than some of the other techniques that people have talked about. So there are reasons to be hopeful, but it's not going to happen so fast that anybody should put off doing something about it right now. You talk about in your book how every species except for mammals actually <laughs> regenerates their hair cells. There are people who are working with all kinds of other animals. Uh, zebrafish is a test animal, a lab animal that is being used by a lot of hearing researchers because their sound receptors are on the outsides of their body. They're much easier to access. The thinking that the reason that mammals don't regenerate lost hearing is that high-frequency hearing 
is so important in animals, in mammals. Both predators and prey can't simply just throw new cells into this highly specialized organ and have it work the way it's supposed to. You know, if you imagine a piano that suddenly developed the ability to grow new strings, unless those strings were in exactly the right place, you wouldn't you wouldn't be restoring a piano if strings were popping up all over the place, they have to be exactly where they're supposed to be, the right tuned to the right frequency in exactly the right sequence. And the inner ear is a little bit like that. So it, nevertheless, scientists have had, in mice, success at, rege- at restoring damaged hair cells that they've damaged themselves, that they've damaged purposely, as long as they administer certain drugs within a very, in a, in a, in a window fairly quickly after the damage has been done. It hasn't really translated into humans yet, but what it has enabled uh, scientists to do is to generate very large populations of hair cells for experimentation, you know, in petri dishes. They can much more directly test drugs and other interventions. Uh, they don't need uh, full working ears. They can create you know, colonies of hair cells that they, can, that they can work with. So it's amazing how many people are working on this. There are a lot of people who are very interested figuring out how to restore hearing in people who have lost it. And the reason it's you know, easy to understand, there's a lot of people now in the, kind of in their prime hearing loss years, the whole baby boom generation. Is, it's, a, it's a large potential market for any kind of hearing cure. Also, in your book, you talk about the cochlear implant. It's a remarkable device, uh, even at a certain age, but within the deaf community, it's viewed in different lights. It is. Cochlear implants, are, they were described to me as the most uh, remarkable replacement or prosthesis for a sense ever. Nothing comparable in vision, for example. They don't work quite the way the, the average layman, myself included, assume, uh, I've seen videos on on YouTube of a of a of an infant who's had cochlear implants and they're being switched on and you see this the child light up and it brought brought tears to my eyes you know the mother's crying and it just, it's like this miracle this hearing restored but you know when I looked at it more closely I thought you know that that reaction is is actually kind of ambiguous and a a woman I talked to who works with cochlear implants including an infant said you know the the, the standard reaction is really more likely to be tears or confusion or nothing, it doesn't switch hearing on. It creates a very stripped down signal, auditory signal, which the brain learns to draw meaning from. But it's, it's magical and yet it's not quite as magical as people sometimes assume. Within what's called the, the capital D deaf community, which is the people who, who can't hear and think of it as a cultural identification as much as they think of it as a, as a physical fact, there is at least ambivalence about cochlear implants. And there are tensions between people who think of themselves as capital D deaf and people who are have hearing loss and who have gotten cochlear implants. And it's, an, it's extraordinarily complicated. One of the reasons is that infants, you can create a, a useful amounts of hearing in people who've lost it with cochlear implants. But it doesn't always, it's not necessarily a perfect and ideal solution, and it depends on the individuals as well. The infants who get cochlear implants often do not learn sign language, and they don't necessarily have the full kind of access to language learning at the ideal moment for learning language that a totally deaf child who in a sign language family would have, who's exposed to sign language from, from infancy. And so there, are, it's it's an incredibly complicated subject. So there's this miraculous uh, technological advance that doesn't always have the effect, that doesn't necessarily have the effect that, that those of us 
who have our hearing uh, think it does. And uh, it's so complicated and so emotional that even somebody who, who can hear, I mean, I hesitate even to have an, a, a, even to try to describe, even to try to characterize the, the issue because, you know, I think, you know, in many ways I'm not entitled to do that. And certainly there are people who would think that I'm not entitled to do that. But it's, it made me grateful that I was not a parent uh, with a, a child deaf from birth where I had to be making those kinds of decisions about, about my own child. To me, it kind of underscores the importance of hearing of communication and different cultures, different identities oftentimes revolve around modes of hearing in a way sort of fundamental to all that. I think one thing that's surprising to people is that 90% of children who are born deaf are born to hearing parents. And I think the assumption among people who can hear is that, oh, that must be an advantage. Well, it's actually generally a disadvantage uh, to be born to hearing parents. If you're born to a deaf child born to deaf parents, those parents are more likely to be users of sign language. The deaf child is therefore exposed to a real language, sign language, from infancy at the time when the brain is most receptive to learning a language. And deaf children who are born to hearing parents often don't get the same kind of language inundation that those children do. And one thing you see is that the people who are sign language interpreters, very often the, the best ones, the most common uh, situation is that they are hearing children of deaf parents who grew up bilingual. They grew up knowing sign language and English simultaneously. They learned spoken English from their friends, and their uh, playmates and classmates at school, and they learned sign language in their home. And they're fluent in both two languages. It's much harder, surprisingly, to be a deaf child with hearing parents because you're, those hearing parents uh, unless they happen to know sign language, don't have the tools to communicate with their child at the time of, lo- of that child's life when it's most important to be in communication with their parents. Cochlear in- implants can 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 bridge that, but it's not a perfect it's not a perfect bridge. And you know the ideal would be for all of us to be bilingual in in a spoken language and in sign language. And especially as I, I'm in my 60s now, as I get older, I have many friends. I wish that we knew sign language because they can't hear me when I talk to them. You know, if we were playing golf or playing bridge. Um, we could use sign language and, and convey things that we're currently incapable of doing because they just can't hear what I'm saying. How do you think then we should get out the message about preserving our own hearing, uh, gaining more awareness about hearing, and respecting our hearing? It's very important to protect hearing. I carry a pair of uh, earplugs on my uh, on my keychain. It's it's easy to you can go on Amazon. You can find all kinds of so-called musicians here earplugs, uh, inex, inexpensive, ten fifteen dollars. I just got a pair that are forty dollars. They're terrific. You can also go up into several hundred dollars and get custom fitted sound dampening earplugs that are great. So the first thing to do is to protect what we have, and then I think it's also to be rational about noticing when we have a problem, paying attention to people who say that we can't hear things and, and having our hearing tested and then, and then doing something about it. There are increasingly many opportunities that are going to be available. Hearing aids have traditionally been incredibly expensive. They tend not to be covered by health insurance. There are less expensive alternatives that are, that are available now and more coming. It's kind of a confusing marketplace, but it's also it's very encouraging because there are going to be opportunities for people who, who currently feel that they're priced out of the hearing improvement market who are going to be able to uh, afford devices that will really be able to help them. I mean, right now I have a, a pair of Bose headphones called Hearphones. They have the same processor that hearing aids do, but they have a bigger battery, so they run a robust version of Bluetooth. They have these terrific directional microphones, three on each ear. They have better speakers. The sound is, is better. 
they're great. The only downside is that they're they're visible. They're not. I don't push them into my ear canal so far that you can't see them. Charlie Rose's uh, hearing aids, they're, they're visible. There's a they they stick in my they stick out of my ears. As the wire goes down, there's a thing that goes around my neck. But they're they're great. So I think that it's the kind of thing too. Uh, let go of the stigma and willing to wear things that other people can see. I think an encouraging sign is that you go outside now on the street. Almost everybody has something sticking out of their ears. You know, they they have their AirPods or they have headphones or they have, uh, you know, there's something that they are wearing. And in that environment, there's less of a stigma attached to having something visible in your ear. Well, we were just talking with Mr. David Owen. He's the author of the new book, Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. And Mr. Owen, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.